The scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 41, verses 1 to 36. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all the, its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could ex interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night. He and I, each having a dream on, with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And we had when, and when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no, no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. And when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them, there will arise seven years of famine, 
and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish throughout the famine. This is the word of the Lord. Dreams can be strange. I read recently about a woman who uh, had a dream she was going to a fancy gala event. And when she was getting dressed, rather than putting on uh, an evening gown, she was wrapping herself with toilet paper. That's the kind of thing that happens in dreams, unusual. Uh, sometimes they're like in reality, but something that wouldn't happen. Sometimes it, it challenges our sense of reality. It's, it's like a somewhat common dream that people have where they show up at school naked. Um, what we typically assume, we, we don't exactly know how dreams work and how they function, but they seem to be typically connected to our emotional lives. And so if we're anxious, worried about something, like a school kid who's self-conscious, um, the dream having sort of a worst case scenario showing up at school without clothing on, vulnerable, exposed, uh, that could simply just signify a kind of fear that's typical uh, in people. Around this time last year, I remember reading about a, a researcher uh, who studies dreams saying that there were reports of, or in her research, people were reporting lots of dreams that involved bugs. So not everyone's dream was the same, not the bug. Some people, it was cockroaches, some it was mosquitoes, some it was ants, some it was worms, some it's beetles. Uh, but around this time last year, there seemed to be a lot of people having dreams that involved bugs. And her, her explanation of that, just assuming, well, the people are anxious. Uh, we've, we've uh, you know, COVID has been with us two or three months. We're sheltering in place. And there's a lot of publicity about being careful to wash your hands, don't spread a virus. Uh, her interpretation is that uh, while people are worried about this, that somehow their minds are, are, are projecting the, the kinds of things they're concerned about, which is that we're not safe. There are these unclean things that are going to come in and swarm and harm us. And so that was her explanation for it. Interesting, months later, uh, she said that she was hearing reports of dreams that, that maybe her interpretation was that it had to do more with alienation. Uh, people dreaming they were in prison or people dreaming they were on the moon by themselves or just locked in a car, which then makes sense. Six months of sheltering in place. You're anxious about it. You're discouraged. It would make sense that that your 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 mind would go there. And so for most of our dreams, we may not understand what happens, but we can maybe make sense of why they're happening. But there is this interesting um, connection between dreams and reality that we're in our dreams processing reality, but sometimes trying to make sense of our dreams. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., one of the most famous speeches ever made, certainly in the United States, I have a dream. And in that he wasn't, he wasn't uh, from my re recollection, wasn't claiming divine revelation of something that will happen. He was using his Christian theology 
and his humanistic, humanistic philosophy, which was in contrast with the reality of what was happening in his time period and uh, prior and after of the Black American experience. And he's, he's trying to give a vision, an imagination of what could be that should inspire the kind of world that most people would say uh, there's something satisfying and we want to move towards that. In a light of that being a vision, a dream that sets forth, what happened to George Floyd is a nightmare. Um, Martin Luther King was, was imagining a reality. The problem is George Floyd, that was the reality. And there's something disorienting about that. Um, this week, as people have been processing the conviction of Derek Chauvin, uh, that happened in reality, but there's something, something dissatisfying uh, while it's satisfying. Um, you know, when people celebrate something wonderful, uh, you know, like when your favorite team wins, there's, there's joy. And people that have been hoping for a conviction, for justice, rejoiced. But the rejoicing wasn't uh, like your favorite team winning. It was a joy mixed with, with this painful reality, but George Floyd is still dead. And justice was served in this case, but, but it's so joyful because the assumption that justice is not usually served. The system doesn't consistently work. And it creates this, this troubling reality that, that we can't work out. And so then, then we go to bed worried, anxious, angry, and our minds project not the kind of vision that Martin Luther King had, but these weird symbols that we can't make sense of. And, and that's part of life in this world, that, that we long for wonderful things, and yet and then we're, we're constantly confronting the fallenness, the brokenness, and that's troubling. In the Bible, where, where maybe, I don't know what expectations you have when you come to the Bible, but, but the Bible portrays a lot of things that don't ordinarily happen, miracles otherwise. And so maybe you come to the Bible thinking, oh yeah, there's going to be dreams all over the place. But actually the Bible isn't that mystical in that sense, in that people are always having visions and dreams. Uh, there are visions, but you know, like John has in Revelation or Ezekiel has, but they're awake for them. Uh, dreams, it, it, actually not many of them. In the Joseph stories, they're there. In the Daniel stories, they're there. And in the few other stories, the dreams seem to be connected where, or seems to show up in some connection between God's people and the broader world, the world that doesn't know God. That's certainly true of the Joseph and the, the Daniel stories. So here we have Pharaoh, uh, the king of Egypt, uh, from the perspective of this story being written, the most powerful man in the world, the most powerful human being. And he has these dreams, these two dreams. And uh, this winds up being an important way that God is going to work in Pharaoh, in Egypt, but in Joseph's life for Joseph's people. And in the, the flow of the Bible in, in, in a much bigger way, I mean, think of hundreds of years later, God's confrontation with a different Pharaoh, bringing his people out of Egypt. These events right now, this, this dialogue between Joseph and Pharaoh, two human beings talking about a dream doesn't seem like a big deal. But in the narrative of Joseph's life, in the narrative of Egypt's story, just in that 20-year period, but, but in the narrative of the whole of scripture, this, this conversation between two people about dreams winds up being very significant. God is doing something very important, very powerful. And so Pharaoh has these dreams that trouble him. Now, the trouble was no doubt for, here's at least two reasons. One, the content of the dreams. 
it's troubling content. So, so the first dream, you have the river, the Nile. Now, rivers are often life-giving. You know, in the banks of rivers, there'll be grass and trees because of irrigation, because of water. And so these seven cows come up out of the river and they're, they're healthy. They're attractive. I don't know in what ways uh, cows are attractive, but these healthy, good-looking, strong cows come up and they graze on this grass. It's a picture of peace, of prosperity, of the world working as it should be. But then the troubling thing happens. Seven other cows come and they're thin and they're ugly. Uh, and th there's something wrong that, that then they come and, and you would think, well, they too are next to this river. There's all this grass, eat the grass. That's what cows do. <laughs> you're thin, you're hungry. There could not be a better place to graze. But instead of eating the grass, they eat the other cows. And I suppose whenever I've read this, I was just pictured like one quick bite where, you know, the, the seven cows just, you know, swallowed up the, uh, the, uh, the healthy cows. Maybe that's how the dream happened. Uh, but in my reflections this week, it's possible that he actually watched these ugly cows devour these, these uh, herbivores um, eating uh, fellow cows. If that was the case, the content would be very troubling. Now, I don't myself know exactly how to uh, envision the next dream, which, is, which Joseph says is the same kind of dream, these seven uh, heads of grain that are, are good looking, healthy, and then similar, there's these seven that have been blown by the east wind. And so they're, they're thin and unhealthy and they wind up eating the other grains. Don't, I myself don't know how to envision that, <laughs> but I know what the symbolism is saying. Uh, the picture is uh, in Joseph's interpretation, uh, and again, you see with the various dreams how the numbers work in sort of time frame from last week with the cupbearer and the baker. Uh, they had these dreams with the number three in it, uh, with these three items. Now there, there are seven items. They stand for it's a period of time. There will be seven years of prosperity, but God is showing there will be seven years of great difficulty. And so the dream is troubling, first of all, because the content is troubling. But secondly, because Pharaoh can't make sense of it, he wakes up and he's had this difficult imagery, but it's not just difficult. The dreams seem so tangible in the way he's able to remember them and recollect them, but they make no sense. And, and what we get from that is, is this is, is a moment where, where God is going to work in the life of Pharaoh for this nation, for Joseph, but God is at work in the world. That, that Joseph, the Pharaoh's dream here um, brings a conversation with one of them. Here's this, this king, the most powerful person, and, and Joseph, who's called out of prison, sort of the strongest and the weakest. And, and as often happens in the Bible, God is going to use this very weak person, the person you wouldn't expect, in order to help the person that would appear to not need any help, but finds himself in a moment of crisis. So here he is, the most powerful person and powerful rulers can't know everything. So they surround themselves with people who know the other experts. And so Egypt, this great historic culture, thousands of years later, remembered for so many uh, such cultural advancement. Part of that is their wisdom tradition. And yet Pharaoh has this dream and he calls together all of his wise counselors and nobody could help him. And God's going to use this, that this powerful person in a powerful nation is now troubled and he sends this weak person <laughs> to help them. And so in this, we see God at work in the world, the broader world through a Pharaoh who doesn't know and doesn't believe and isn't looking for uh, faith in this God. And yet God is at work there, but God is at work uh, 
partly for the sake of Joseph and for Joseph's people. So I'm going to look at those two things as we move forward. So first, God's work in the world. Uh, the reason I'm beginning there is because this is important in the Bible, that, that, that the Bible invites us to a personal faith, believe, study the Bible, understand not just God in general, but Jesus Christ. Um, uh, faith is not meant to remain general, but it's supposed to become particular, intentional. And yet, um, you could sometimes get the impression as you go out into the world that reality is different. The Bible feels a little bit like a dream world, <laughs> a vision, a fantasy of what can be. And then we go into a world that, that is completely disconnected and we think God is not working, the broader reality. And so we wind up getting caught up in the dreams of this world that actually, if I want a good life, maybe I need prosperity and success and comfort and whatever it is that, that the world goes after. And we're told to actually hold on to a greater vision. But trust also in this world, God is at work, which is why as a church, we pray for leaders of nations, all nations. There are nations where the leaders are not committed to Christianity in any, even in a non-superficial way, as maybe in, in some of the quote Christian countries. Uh, there are people that, that uh, leaders who don't believe anything, and yet we pray for them. Why? Because we believe somehow God who is over the whole world, that's Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth, everything. Uh, it comforts us to know that all leaders are ultimately accountable to God that they should be stewarding their power and wisdom by studying God's world and, and figuring things out. But even if they don't acknowledge God, God will sometimes show up in their lives to intervene, to trouble, to protect others. And so here that happens. So Pharaoh um, has this dream that, that is sent by God. And so, so verse eight, his experience of it, he's troubled. It says, in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and he called for the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So uh, here we have this, this crisis for Pharaoh, this vivid, troubling dream he can't make sense of, and nobody could help him. And so I don't know how, uh, I don't know what it's like to be somebody like Pharaoh, <laughs> but, but I assume a certain measure of confidence. And here's a moment where he's, he's confronted with inability, with helplessness. And it's that weakness that becomes part of this story of what God, God is going to do. Um, but it's interesting that, that here we meet the, the wisdom, the wise counselors, the magicians um, of Egypt, and they can't help him. And it's a curious feature of, of the Joseph stories in terms of the contrast between Joseph and God's people, those who are descendant from Abraham that have what we would call special revelation. God speaks with clarity in certain ways to them. In the broader world in which they live, where they are called to bless that world, the, the hope is that that world will be changed through these special people. Um, but there's that, that disconnect. It's interesting with the last week's passage, the cupbearer and the baker had these dreams. And similarly, they were troubled. They couldn't interpret it. Nobody could help them. And here's Pharaoh, and he has these dreams, and he can't interpret them. As a Bible reader, I understand that. I read the accounting of these dreams, and they don't make sense to me. It's this curious point that Joseph has these dreams and at the beginning of the series, Genesis 37, he goes to his family and says, I had a dream that the sun, moon, and 11 stars bowed down before me. And the response of his family is to get angry. How dare you think you're going to be better than us? I find myself thinking, how did they get that from a dream about, you know, Joseph looking up at the sky? There, there's something about Joseph and his family that they have an understanding that the rest of the world doesn't have. How is it that when Joseph shared that dream, and I, and I don't know, but it just strikes me when I read, Joseph shares the dream, and his father and brothers understand what Joseph is getting at. And yet Pharaoh has this dream, and he has this counsel, and, 
and he can't understand. This powerful person can't make sense of reality. And that's something that we see getting clarified as you go through the Bible, that God has made the world with wisdom, that anyone could study the world and find true things about how it works. But there's something about the coherence of it that you will never get unless God makes known the deeper things. And so Joseph shows up in Pharaoh's life, uh, this weak person who's going to be God's agent speaking to him. And so uh, we see here, verse 16, Joseph is sent to Pharaoh, uh, but it's important what he says at first. He says, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So the cupbearer remembers, two years later, he remembers, actually, I met this Hebrew who has the wisdom to interpret dreams. And Joseph seems to offer, at least for the reader, a correction. (laughs) It's not me. It's not that I've studied. It's not that I've learned. It's not that I've figured it out. God is doing something in your life. (laughs) God is working directly in Pharaoh's life in a way that Pharaoh can't make sense of. So Joseph says, it's not in me, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Not necessarily a good interpretation, but you want to know what this means? Okay, God is going to show you. And so uh, in the timing of this, where where, where Pharaoh has these dreams and, and the, uh, the cupbearer remembers Pharaoh, there's this coming together at this moment that's clearly ordained by God. That's how the story is presented to us. And, and it's because God is going to, to show something. But what's interesting is it's not that Joseph shows up to Pharaoh and Joseph doesn't send a messenger. I have this thing that Pharaoh needs to know. God works directly in Pharaoh's life, but Pharaoh still needs to depend on God's people. So in verse 25, Joseph comes, uh, and you could see it gets repeated again in verse 28. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. So God has revealed to Pharaoh. God is working in the life of this this powerful person in the world um, about what he's about to do. And here in the conflict with human power, that whatever we conceive of of the greatest that humans could achieve we fail to appreciate that there's always a limit. And one of the limiting factors of human beings is we don't know the future. (laughs) So this revelation that God is going to show Pharaoh what's about to happen is a signal that this is another unique moment in history that the Bible records these many of these unique moments. And that's why they're often so fantastic. Um, But God is showing Pharaoh what he is about to do. This is a revelation of the future. And that's something that anyone who knows the future, uh, that's valuable because one of the things that causes most of us struggle, fear, anxiety, is because we don't know the future. And anxiety is sometimes just imagining the future in a negative way. (laughs) Um, uh, We don't know what will happen, but we know what can happen and that troubles us. Um, we We wouldn't have anxiety if we knew for sure that the worst things wouldn't happen. It's because we don't know what will happen that we struggle with anxiety. And so what do we want as human beings? We want to know that the future is sure and the future is good. And yet, how do we know that? And what we have in the Bible is, well, we can know it if God makes it known. But otherwise, we're stuck. So even the most powerful person is weak. And and so that desire to know the future, I mean, that's what everyone wants access to in in some way. Isn't that very practical? Uh, Here's, if if you, um, this is not actual advice, but I'm going to present it as advice, but if you want, uh, here's a tip for people who want success. A conspiracy theory could be a very good way um, uh, to have success. And and here's what I mean by that. I don't necessarily mean politically, but if you are a contrarian, if you have very strong opinions, contrary to everyone else on lots of issues, keep doing that for a number of years. And eventually, if you do that with enough things, one of them is bound to become right. 
And when that happens, that becomes your brand, that becomes your thing. And so if you're doing that in the financial world and you want to show how everyone is wrong and everyone is wrong everywhere, you could be wrong in a hundred things. You just need to be right about one thing and then make that your story and hope that nobody's paying attention to the fact that you've done this a lot and are mostly wrong. But if you build a brand to say, look, 20 years ago, everybody was saying this one thing, but I was the one saying the opposite. And here's why. Um, it's not that anyone thinks that, that, that you would be prophetic to have this divine revelation of the future, but the ability to understand the past and the present enough that you can project out what will happen, that's reasonable. We do need to forecast, right? So, so somebody who can forecast with accuracy, wow, that's valuable. We will get on board with that person uh, who, will, who will convince us, I did this once before, now I can do it again, listen to me. We're a bit naive. We'll listen to that person because we're so desperate. Um, and yet most of us would say, uh, look, sometimes we believe in mystical things that people have revelations of the future, but, but even, uh, in, in the task of the scientific method or whatever it is that you study the past, you understand the present, you try to build a model to forecast, to project out what we can expect. That is what human wisdom is meant to be, but it's different than divine revelation. Um, here's Pharaoh, uh, here's his, his counselors and and they imagine what they want in the future and they're working hard, but now there's, there is a divine revelation. This is not typical that God does this, um, but God knows the future. God alone can control the future. And so he breaks into Pharaoh's life and he gives him a, a glimpse of what's about to happen. And what that signals to this most powerful person in his current weakness and vulnerability is that there is one more powerful than him. And it's interesting that, that, that Pharaoh then winds up depending on this prisoner, Joseph, this foreigner, Hebrew, this slave, who is the voice, the servant of the more powerful God, who is going to show this most powerful king that he is about to be helpless unless he listens. And so um, verse 32, the doubling of Pharaoh's dream, these two dreams that they think are different dreams, the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it, shortly bring it about. So the picture here is, this is going to happen. God is announcing, God is making known what will happen. And here's two quick things that we can take from this, which is uh, one, as you look at the response, Joseph's counsel. Um, for most of us, the concept of freedom is that the future is open-ended and I could sort of create the life for myself that I want. And, and it's once we have that confrontation of our smallness, of, of our limitations, of, of how others have greater power than us, that this open-ended future becomes scary. And so the Bible doesn't say that the future is open-ended. It says God has actually fixed certain things and he's making them known. Uh, but the other, the other problem is then uh, sort of what we would describe as the de deterministic response, which is to say, well, if everything's already happens, well, then it doesn't matter what I do. Then there's no agency. And the Bible presents a different picture. The Bible presents a picture that God makes known certain definite things. And so we're not left to wander. Uh, but on the other hand, we are called to respond to those things. And so Pharaoh is shown, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have seven years of prosperity, but then there are going to be seven lean, difficult years of famine. God has, has shown that is what's going to happen. So Pharaoh's question, what do we do, is exactly the right question. Joseph says, now let's make a plan. <laughs> um, and so, so they apply wisdom. And so God shows us future realities. Every human being gives an account for their life. Um, you know, secret things become known. And so it's, it's out of accord with reality to live with the secret inner world where 
where we can have these terrible thoughts and evil plans and assume that if we put on a good face and go into the world that we could be successful. God has made known in the future that that will not work. You can't live a good life if that's what you're going to do. And so it's fixed, but now there's a choice. So what are you going to do if you will have to be given account? Will you deal with your struggles? Will you try to change or will you act as though uh, that's not going to happen? And so, so the revelation of the future helps us to live wisely in the present. That's one thing that you might just notice from this. But here, here's a second thing, as this is a story about um, God working in the broader world. You know, sometimes as people of faith, uh, it could feel so lonely, isolating, and we could feel powerless as we go into a world. You know, you go to a workplace, uh, most of you work in places where, where you don't begin the day in prayer and where people don't, don't um, look at their core values and ask if God would uh, find them honorable. And so, so um, how do you go into the world believing in God's calling and God's way of life in a world that doesn't acknowledge him. And, and it's not that Joseph is the only model, but Joseph becomes one of the examples of somebody who shows up with a certain transparency. He's, he names that, he, uh, that God has given this vision, that he's a servant of this God. Um, and, and yet Joseph recognizes that, that it doesn't all depend on him, <laughs> but God was at work directly in Pharaoh's life. And Joseph shows up as, as an explainer. And so we go into the world and, and we expect that, that God is at work in the life of your boss and your coworkers, of, the, of the, the, the people that you're on the subway with, the people who deliver your food to you. Um, they may not all believe what we believe, but every human being is made in this world that God has created them in this world. And there's a sense in which, on the one hand, we have a responsibility to bear witness to God and to help people. On the other hand, it doesn't all depend on us. <laughs> and it's that, that middle ground that when you think, well, God is not at work and I need to be the one that explains it, that terrifies us with our inability. But on the other hand, if we say, well, God is going to do it, I could just stay home and do nothing. It, mix, it misses that reality that God has sent you into your workplace or school or given you whatever it is that your livelihood or what takes your time to do for a purpose. And the purposes are various. And you don't know what they are. But, but the biblical vision is God is always at work in the world, even in the details. And we're called to be watching and to respond faithfully. And so sometimes you will have a coworker that, that shows up and has a dream. And you may not have divine revelation. That, that's different than this story. But somebody comes and says, boy, I was having these dreams of all these insects and, uh, that were attacking me. And, and you don't necessarily know how to interpret it, but you could say, wow, it sounds like you're worried about something. What do you do when you're worried? Because here's what I do when I'm worried. I find that, that understanding that God is my protector helps me. Uh, that's a different kind of conversation than I'm trying to convince you that Christianity is true and you're wrong. Um, it's recognizing, I, you, we don't know if that person's bad dream is because God is calling them. We have no idea, but they come to work and they say, I've had a bad dream. And, and you become that interpreter. <laughs> um, hey, I have bad dreams and here's how God helps me make sense of my life. And, and that actually postures us well to to go into the world. And maybe um, your task at the workplace is, is not like Joseph, the interpreter of dreams or the one who bears witness to God, but to, to work skillfully. That's part of a theology of work, that God is at work in the world. And so therefore the work that I do matters. One interesting thing about the Joseph story is it shows that, that God is at work in a special way in his people. But before we get there, God is at work in the whole world. And that's important for us to know because we go into a world that communicates to us something different. And it's that vision of faith that says, actually, um, we hold to a different vision, a redemptive vision, this biblical vision that God can do great things, even through somebody who may be weak. And that's where the narrative helps us. If God could call Joseph out of prison, it means that there's nobody 
in any sphere of the church who is so weak or helpless or unworthy that they can't be used uh, in some way. And so, yes, a weak person could, could speak to people in power. That's possible, not in our own strength, but if God is at work. And that's what we see, God is at work. But I do want to move more particularly um, in this story, because we do see that God is at work for the salvation of the Egyptian people in a temporal sense. This famine is coming. And with Joseph's advice, they're protected. They're able to get through those seven lean years. But God is also doing something in Joseph's life, particularly for Joseph. But God is doing something through Joseph for Joseph's people, his family, the descendants of Jacob. In this time period, his his brothers and their families that will be starving during the seven years, but also in a broader sense of, of how God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham. And so this scene is, is a turnaround. It's a redemptive moment. Last week, uh, Justine in her very good children's message uh, talked about when, uh, certain TV shows. You get to the end of a TV show and there's this cliffhanger ending that you think the story will resolve, and all of a sudden, another problem arises. Oh, no, are things going to get worse? The Joseph story thus far has been unfolding that way. Oh, Joseph, this wonderful, beloved son with this great coat, and then all of a sudden, there's a conspiracy against him. He's thrown out of the pit. Oh, but he comes out of the pit, and he's wise and honest and has integrity, and then he's rising up, and then he gets falsely accused, and he's thrown in the pit. And there's this sense in which Joseph's story is this constant um, accusation and injustice and being forgotten. But now in God weaving together these years, 13 years from the time Joseph is 17 to now he's about 30, two years after he interpreted the cupbearer's dream, all of a sudden there's this redemptive moment. Um, and, and the last chapter that we looked at, chapter 41, ends with the cupbearer saying, but he did not remember Joseph. He forgets him. And two years later, Pharaoh has this dream, and it jogs the cupbearer's memory. All of a sudden, he remembers Joseph. And it's interesting the way he speaks about Joseph. It's almost like his memory was Joseph was a, another wise person, a person skilled at interpretation. And if you notice, Joseph's interaction with Pharaoh is very different. With, with, with Pharaoh, it's so clear, God is doing this. God is speaking. And in the next section that we'll look at next week, Pharaoh then winds up saying, well, I want you, Joseph, to lead this because the spirit of God is in you. Pharaoh sees God at work and wants Joseph there. The cupbearer seems to have been so overwhelmed with his experience. And however, Joseph tells the story that, that it's as if he didn't realize he was encountering God's servant. So he forgot Joseph. Joseph was just a guy. Now he remembers Joseph is the interpreter of dreams. Um, and in that remembering, the cupbearer gets a second chance. Joseph is no ordinary person, but now this guy that you forgot, you better hope that he's kind to you because he's soon going to be the second most powerful person in Egypt. And so verse nine, the cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. And, and in that, the moral language of that, it is a signal from, from a literary perspective. I don't know exactly whether or not the cupbearer felt guilty. I don't know what he was thinking, but Joseph has been sinned against <laughs> over and over and over. And now in this moment where there's a remembering of Joseph by one of those people who says, I remember my offenses today. It's a turnaround that this time when Joseph comes out of the pit, he's not going back to the pit. The story's not neat. There's still tension. There's still struggles. It's not that everything is perfect. Joseph will have to go through these seven years of famine. Um, but Joseph is not going back to the pit. There's a turnaround in the narrative. And now 
everything starts to come together. We start to see how this is a redemptive story, that all of the brokenness and mess that creates this impossible situation over the upcoming years will be fixed in ways that Joseph himself still can't imagine. Joseph now knows uh, it, by the end of this chapter that he plays a prominent role in the future of Egypt. Joseph does not know that more than seven years later, his brothers will show up. And so the story still has surprises and tensions, but there's a redemptive turnaround. At this point, there's an acknowledgement of wrong. There's a remembering of the person sinned against. There's a coming out of the pit. And that starts to change <clears throat> Joseph and everything around Joseph. So we have this interaction, verse 14, Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when, they, when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Now that's, that's maybe a very obvious uh, image right there of the person who uh, is the last person that should ever have come before the most powerful, glorious, uh, kingly universe. Somebody that needs to get cleaned up because he probably smells and he looks like a mess, has no credibility by human standards. So he needs to clean himself up. So he shaves, he changes his clothes. But Bible commentators say that actually, at a, at a deeper level, his shaving and his changing is not simply about a lowly, dirty guy that, that needs to be cleaned up. But there's also a, a picture of a transformation that's happening in Joseph's life, because part of the Egyptian custom was to shave your head, not just the beard. Um, the Hebrew custom was not to do that. And there's a component of the Joseph story that, that having been rejected by his people, he now is being welcomed by these other people. He will, he will take a prominent role. Um, he will now start to look more like an Egyptian. He, that, that robe that his father gave him was stripped by him. He's now going to be clothed by a robe of dignity, but it's, it's an Egyptian robe. So the next time his brothers see him, they don't recognize him. And there's this turnaround here that, that fits this challenge that's hard for anyone to make sense of. But you see in the New Testament where we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. That's so hard to do. How is it that, that God changes us and transforms us, but sends us into the world without falling into either of the two obvious sociological traps, the fundamentalist trap, which is to say we need to withdraw and protect and clearly identify ourselves, or the assimilationist trap, which is let's just become so much like them that there's, there's, we're not influencing in any way. That, that's hard to figure out. And Joseph is not necessarily the exact model of that, but, but I'm highlighting that the Joseph story shows us that dynamic as we read it, as we're trying to think, what does it look like to be people of faith in the world? That there's a sense in which Joseph takes on certain of the Egyptian customs, but he always remains distinct in his faithfulness to God. That's really hard to figure out how to do it, but, but we see it in this moment. And, and it has implications for in our diversifying world where we're talking about the dynamics of different people. I think uh, 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 one category of, of people who may understand or appreciate certain dynamics of, of the Joseph story is second generation uh, people from immigrant families, where you grow up saying, my parents set a culture for our household and I value it and appreciate it, but I, I disagree with a lot of it. But I go among the dominant culture and I value and aspire to a lot of it, but I also disagree and don't feel at home in it. The Joseph story is about Joseph who was rejected from his people and he's identifiable as a Hebrew. He's different. He's not at the height of society, but, but he will climb society, but he will climb society and never getting to the top, the position of Pharaoh. And there, those dynamics actually help us through the various ways we're asking the question, what does it mean to know that God is with me? As I go into a world where I feel like I never belong in any particular place, there's always continuity, 
discontinuity. The Bible story presents the providence of God to say, well, that's a hard situation. Joseph's life was hard, but God's at work in it. And God will use some of those points of discontinuity in order to, uh, to use you as you go into the world. Uh, and so what winds up happening in verse 33, um, Joseph offers advice. He says, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. And I don't know Joseph's intentions. My read was that this was just innocent adv advice, not that Joseph was setting himself up for success. But what do I know? All I know is he, he offers this counsel to Pharaoh and Pharaoh recognizes I was completely helpless. Nobody around understood but the spirit of God is in you. Again, we'll see that next week. And therefore, I want you to be the second most prominent person. I want you to be my advisor. I want you to help me through these next 14 years where it takes a certain amount of faith, right? Because it's going to be seven years of prosperity where everyone's saying, why do you believe this Joseph guy that we're going to have a famine? It doesn't seem true. Um, and yet it is. And so, uh, so this story that we have here about Joseph being brought out of the pit being the means that God, who is more powerful than Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh in his pride may not have seen that until Pharaoh reveal, uh, uh, re realized he was helpless. And when he's helpless, then he's willing to hear from the smelly, poor Hebrew slave in the pit. And it's this bringing together of a story to show that God's ways are not our, our ways, that transform our view of the world, that remind us of the nature of Christianity, because Christianity makes claims about the power and the glory and the authority of Jesus Christ. And you'd think that the most effective persuasive apologetic for Christianity is that in a world that loves prominence, fame, honor, power, that the Christian story we would present is to say there is a greater power. See that. And that would be fair enough. Maybe at times that's the case you make for Christianity or for, for you trying to grapple, do I believe, should I believe Christianity? Well, remember, there's something greater than anything you could see. I think that's compelling. But there's something about human beings that will always misunderstand that message, that will, will then align with Christianity in a way that has the, the trappings of empire, where then Christianity becomes like the world rather than uh, counter to the world and transformative of the world. And what's remarkable is that before Jesus declares, as he does at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, or in Luke and Acts, where Jesus ascends into heaven and takes his throne, the Christian story is about power and glory and honor. But we need our concepts of power, glory, and honor so transformed that God comes to us typically, everyone's story is different, but typically not showing us that he is more powerful than us in some bare way. <laughs> but in showing us our weakness. And so for Pharaoh, it was a dream that he couldn't make sense of and nobody around him could help him with. Everyone's story is different. It's not that the only way for transformation is through crisis, but most people who become Christian, whether it's becoming Christian or growing as a Christian, at some point, there's some revelation of our own inability, our own lack of understanding, our own fear, our own incompetence, something going wrong, failure. The stories are various and different. But, but before we understand the great power that God has for us, before it can be entrusted to us, God often shows us our weakness. But the way of God is not to send Jesus from the heavens to have a thunderous laugh as we fail, but actually to send Jesus to a place lower than we've ever been. <laughs> so that when we fall apart and we need to realize that our weakness is not as hopeless as it is, 
It's a man who comes out of the pit, who then bears witness to say, this is what God is revealing to you. And Joseph then points to the greater Joseph, the truer Joseph, Jesus Christ, which is why the message of Christianity is not first, there's a king on the throne, but we have a man on a cross who came to you because you and your weakness would be crushed by facing God in his power. But God in his power came and he became weak through Jesus Christ. And now Jesus, uh, who went to your place to suffer, uh, comes out to show you what a true vision of power, honor, and glory is. And that becomes transformative in a way that Christians are then, uh, God doesn't love weakness. God loves the weak. <laughs> and God comes patiently along the we- alongside the weak and says, I will, I will restore you and give you strength, but it will not come from you or from the world. It will come from my grace because true power and strength and honor and dignity is in me. And because I alone am powerful, but also gracious and wise, I don't use my power to humiliate you or to hold you back, but I send Jesus to gather you to me who suffers in weakness. And if Jesus is too weak to have credibility for you to listen to him, if he's not trustworthy enough, then for you to really be transformed, you need to have a a deeper understanding of your own limitations. It's that understanding of our own limitations that most of us know intuitively, but we're battling that then when we really grasp leaves us so disempowered that we don't have, we don't have the energy for a normal life. (laughs) It's then when God comes in and says, but do you understand the fixed and sure future that God will vindicate you, that God remembers you. And therefore in your current experience of weakness, you can try to get it together or you could look to the one on the throne with his power and glory who says, come and I will be with you and find then that not only is your transformation that you start to become hopeful and have more energy to go out into this hard world, but you go out with a redemptive view or a renewed vision for the possibility that God is at work and God will use you, even you and your weakness, even if you feel like you're the least uh, in society, in this church, in the world, uh, the gospel says, but, but God is the greatest. And therefore God determines if, if he has created you and sends you out, don't worry if you're weak. It doesn't depend on you. God will, God will be at work in a broader way than just you, but trust that God calls and cares for you. And therefore, um, your life is not random. We don't know what God is doing. We can't interpret every event, but we watch by faith to say, but God, somehow you're over this. Somehow you're in this. And it, it may have taken Joseph two years of wondering why he was forgotten by the cupbearer to, to hear the explanation. Two long, hard years. 13 years of being sold to his friends, uh, sold by his brothers, and another at least seven years. Um, This is a long period of time before Joseph's life, more than 20 years later, starts to make sense. Of course, we don't know this month what's happening, but what we're told is that God is with us, that somehow God will be at work to use us or to use others in our lives. And so Jesus, who shows himself uh, to have this great power, reminds us to be like like Joseph, to say, "It's, it's not in me. Uh, it's never in me. It's always uh, me as a servant of God. Jesus, who gives us a vision for that, encourages us, those who will believe, those who will listen, those who feel forgotten and weak. And because of that, those for whom this world makes them feel anxious, we're told, don't worry, there's a greater strength. And then we go into the world and say, but I don't have it. And so what does Jesus say to the weak, to those who, who can't make sense of things? This is Luke 12. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, meaning not a lot of money, and not one of them is forgotten before God. 
Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. So he's talking about God's providential care. Are we agreed that sparrows are not valued in our economy? And yet God knows each sparrow. And so what about you, a human being? (laughs) What about the investment God has already made in you and your life? If it's so much more and God knows the number of hairs in your head, why live a life of fear when you can have a confidence that if God is in you and at work with you, that his care for you is there. And so he knows the number of hairs on your head. So you find yourself wondering, why am I waking up with these weird dreams that somehow express every day, I'm anxious, I'm worried about something, I'm troubled, I don't feel good enough, I'm grappling with shame. You know, the images are different. It could be getting dressed with toilet paper for a great event. It could be bugs coming to attack you. It could be any number of things. Um, Not every dream is a revelation from God. Sometimes it's just your own fear, your own anxiety, your own confrontation with a world that's out of accord with the vision that God gives us of this world, of what can be and what we're told is fixed, one day what shall be, the redemptive end that those who uh, stay faithful will participate in. It's hard to participate in that when we get anxious and start to feel, I'm weak, I'm not going to make it. How do I know this will come true? Well, when you wake up in the middle of the night having had that dream, uh, first of all, whatever images uh, are troubling you, think about sparrows unless you find sparrows intimidating. Then think of something else. I find sparrows kind of cute and chirpy. (laughs) If I lay in bed and think about these sparrows, as Jesus tells me, that's much better than being attacked by a swarm of cockroaches Uh, or a classic uh, New York dream that that, uh, uh, the the rat that the union has outside of of whoever they're protesting comes to life and and runs into your apartment. Uh, Lay in bed and realize, Lord, I am weak and I'm worried. And let me think of these birds, these birds that sing and depend on you. Um, And instead of counting sheep, um, because that's just a way of focusing our minds, let me try to count the number of hairs on my head. Not that you have to hold them or pull at them, but just to imagine the number of follicles. That will get you through at least eight hours of counting. You'll never get to the end. You don't know the number of hairs on your head unless you look at some, uh, some, some mathematical projection. But just laying in bed without your calculator and without your, uh, your college education, you lay in bed, you think of the birds, and you start counting the hairs in your head, and you realize... Uh, the Lord knows the numbers of hairs on my head. Um, and if you're bald, he, uh, he knows the number of, of, of cells in your body. Um, the Lord has made us. He knows us in very detailed ways. And what Jesus says is, yes, of course you will be anxious. This world is scary. You don't know the future. You have to trust God. There's no getting around that. But Jesus comes into your life and he comes with you and, and says, you can trust me. Um, because I I come alongside as one who knows weakness, but I join with you because you're not meant to be left weak, but, but, but you are, are invited into this vision that's glorious where there is power and restoration, but it's a redemptive vision. And so, uh, if that's something you're still grappling to understand, if you're not a Christian, maybe the Lord is troubling your life and your circumstances because he's calling you. Maybe Maybe the Lord is, is surrounding you in some sort of way because he's trying to show you something better. Uh, but Christians, um, we don't get this automatically. We still worry with fear and unbelief, and, and the world tells a contrary story. We need to hold by faith to this redemptive story that God has made known the fixed end. Yes, we will give an account for our lives, but he will say, well done, good and faithful servant, if we've known the servant Jesus Christ. 
And so we're told he's sent to be the one who shows the revelation to interpret this world for us. And he tells us, if you're afraid, not that you're no longer worthy of being in his kingdom, but he just doesn't want you to be afraid. <laughs> and to remember that he cares for you and, and let that memory sustain you while you watch for what God is doing in your life. And so let's be encouraged that God is sovereign. God is in control. Let's be honest. We're humble. We're weak. We don't know what God is doing, but God will use us and God will work in your life for your sake. God will often work in your life for somebody else's sake. So watch for what God is doing. And if you're faithful to Jesus Christ, you can have confidence that every faithful action will bear fruit in some way. So this week, watch and be faithful. And don't worry, because God is with you. Let me pray. Our Father, um, we come to you as, as a weak people. Some of us really um, are so overwhelmed by the knowledge of our weakness, we need repair. We believe things that are untrue. We're actually not as weak as we think we should be. But many of us come in our pride today, not willing to yet see that we are more dependent on you than we should be, uh, or than we are now. Lord, we are people that, that need your salvation and grace, your mercy and forgiveness. And we thank you for um, showing us that in the, in the course of Joseph's difficult life, you had not forgotten him, you had not neglected him, but you had appointed specific moments to restore him and use him and to bring him honor and to use him uh, powerfully in the world. Lord, maybe none of us will ever be, uh, will achieve the greatness of, of Joseph. Um, but there's a greater one, Jesus Christ, who invites us to share in his life. And so, Lord, may we all um, have the grace to, to take our weakness and cast it upon him. Um, Lord, take away our anxiety, our fear, our worry, and the various sufferings that keep us from being productive. And strengthen us that we would go into the world this week uh, to watch what you're doing and to be in tune with the spirit so that we would act in every opportunity to glorify and honor you as your servants and to trust that you will, you will show us your wisdom uh, and that you will work uh, through us in ways that are above what we're able, able and capable of. So Lord, help us. And I pray that our church would continue to help one another in this, that we would um, strengthen the, the weak in our midst, that we would um, put forth a confidence that's not prideful and arrogance, but, um, but restores um, the troubles of this, uh, restores our hearts in light of what the troubles of this world do to us before we, we gather each week. Uh, may your spirit be, be at work in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.